How many of you are familiar with the phrase, bad things always come in threes? Anybody ever heard that? Or how about this one? Bad news happens in waves. How about that? Or just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, what? It does. I think we're all familiar with this one. When it rains, it pours. Have you experienced that? Bad things happening in threes. When it rains, it pours. We all have, right? I remember when I was younger, I was playing baseball. I was a catcher, and uh, we were playing a Saturday game, and uh, we were up to bat, so I was in the dugout cooling off, and uh, one of my teammates hit a foul ball, and it went through the only hole in the dugout and hit me right in the face. Black in my left eye. I look pretty bad. Very next game, I'm taking infield. I, I've got my catcher's mask off. And uh, normally it goes home first when you take infield. For some reason, I was looking down first baseline. And uh, coach hit it right to our pitcher. And he came up firing. And I hear somebody say, Graham, look out. And right when I look up, ball hits me right in the face and uh, broke my nose, blackened my other eye. It was funny, my mom hadn't even got to the game yet, and they said, you need to go to the ER. And she's like, what? It hadn't even started yet. What happened? And um, I'd like to say it was during a, you know, someone sliding into home, and I got, you know, collided with somebody, but it didn't happen that way. Uh, after I had to have surgery, my nose was so badly broken, after that, uh, there were some complications there, and I had difficulty seeing coming out of the uh, surgery, so they had to put two patches over my eyes, two black eyes, a broke nose. I was very, I was a good-looking kid then that summer, and uh, they had to wheel me out in a wheelchair, and, and I remember uh, to my young mind, I thought, I, I can't take anything else. I could not take one more mishap. You ever feel that way? You just feel like, I, I can't take one more thing to come. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. This morning we're going to discuss what we are to do, how we are to live as believers when times get tough. Like I said last week, we are to the practical portion of the, of the book of Hebrews. We've been here for a little while. From the beginning of the book, Throughout most of the book, the author of Hebrews has been giving a theology lesson on why Jesus is better, why he is greater, supreme over everyone and everything. And the reason he camps out on this point is because he is dealing with a group of Jewish believers who are questioning that, who are drifting spiritually. They have been heavily influenced by Old Testament Judaism. They were holding up their, their old beliefs prior to Christ, their old practices that had been fulfilled by Christ. They're holding them next to Christ in the Christian faith and were failing to see Christ as the fulfillment of those promises made to Moses. They failed to see Christ as a true and better priest, the king of all kings, ruler and lord, the only hope of and, and way to salvation. And we also talked last week about the fact that 
in addition to having this crisis of faith, this group of Christians were enduring lots of hardships. They had suffered persecution. And though they had endured faithfully for a time, it was wearing on them and they were, were struggling spiritually. They were publicly insulted for their faith. Some were locked up. Their property had been plundered. The only thing that they had been spared from at this time was death. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He says, in pursuit, your pursuit of godliness in your Christian life, while it has resulted in public ridicule and imprisonment, the plundering of your property, it has not yet led to your death. None of them had died yet for their faith, but notice he doesn't leave that out of the realm of possibility. He says, yet, meaning they might, some of them might, sometime soon. But things were, were, were still really bad for them. So in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews addresses these trials that they have had to endure. He also does it in Hebrews 10 as well. And he writes to them to encourage them and instruct them to remain faithful. He gives them examples of believers who had walked in their shoes in the previous chapter in Hebrews 11. Men and women of faith who remain faithful no matter the circumstances. And he calls for them to follow in their footsteps. Hebrews 12 is all about how to live the Christian life. How to run the race of faith faithfully for God. So this morning, we're, we're going to look at this race that, that they've been, they were called to run, that we've been called to run as believers, and we're going to look at how we are to run this race when times are tough. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 this morning, and we're going to discuss what we are to do, how we are to live when times get tough. God has an answer for us in His Word, and aren't you glad that He does? Aren't you glad that God's Word addresses difficulty, trials, pain, and sorrow? He does not shy away from those things. I've said this in the past, that God doesn't always blow sunshine in His Word. Not every verse of Scripture reads like a Hallmark card. You know why? Because that's not where we live. Life can be extremely difficult. At times, unbearable. Aren't you glad that God speaks to us in that situation, in those circumstances? He speaks to us in the trials of this life. We can look to His Word, know how we're to think about a situation, how we're to respond when times are good and when times are tough. So this morning, we're going to look at the latter. And I want you to notice several things here. Number one, when tough times come, do not give up. Do not give up. Pretty simple, right? But hard to apply. Look at verse 12 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. 
In this passage, the author of Hebrews is taking his audience back once again to the Old Testament, to Isaiah 35 this time. We've seen him do this many times before. This is a Jewish Christian audience. They were well-versed in Scripture. They, they, they would have known this passage of Scripture. He is citing the Old Testament to help bring credibility to what he's saying, to help encourage them in the faith, to be obedient to Christ. Let's look at Isaiah 35, 3 through 4. I've got it up on the screen. Look at it for just a moment. This is an encouraging word for a group of persecuted people. Isaiah says this, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Comforting words from a faithful prophet to a persecuted people. Isaiah is a prophet to Israel. At this time, the Israelites were, were suffering when this is being written at the hands of the Assyrians. And so Isaiah is writing here to encourage God's people. He ensures them God is faithful. He will return. He will save you. Rest in Him. Do not give up. Strengthen your weak hands. Make firm your feeble knees. Be strong and fear not. And in the context of Hebrews, the situation is very similar. The Jewish Christians at this time were suffering. They had been separated from family, imprisoned. Their, their property had been plundered. They had not yet shed blood, but that was not out of the realm of possibility for them. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to them, and he is using Isaiah's words, and he is applying it to their situation. He's saying, I know you're getting tired. I know you're weak. Your knees are feeble. Do not lose heart. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Do not give up. How do we not give up? Listen, we got to get our focus off of ourselves and onto Jesus, right? Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord is coming, and He's going to deal with these wicked people. He's going to deal with these unrepentant persecutors. He is coming to deliver and restore you completely, forever. So don't give up. Great word, right? Great word for a people who are in a bad way. You ever been there? Maybe not persecution, but life has got you down in some way. You feel like giving up on your friends, family, faith in general. We've been there, right? Maybe some of you are here this morning. That's where you are. I'm glad you're here. This word is for you. Maybe you've lost a loved one. You're having difficulty in your marriage. Difficulty with children. Maybe difficulty with parents. Trouble at, at work, trouble at school, and you're, you're tempted to give up. Listen to the words of the author of Hebrews here. He calls for you to do the opposite. He says, when times get tough, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your feeble knees. Lift up your eyes above the storms of this life and look to Jesus for guidance and strength and direction and rescue. Here's point number two. 
Times get tough. Number one, do not give up. Number two, stay on the hard but right path. Look at verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This verse is taken from Proverbs 4, verses 25 through 27. It's your, your passage for the week in your study guide. Look at it up on the screen, or you can look at it in your study guide. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is how you live the Christian life. This is how you run this spiritual race. Like the faithful before you, when times get tough, you run it by keeping your eyes in front of you. It is awful hard to run straight when you're looking to the side or behind you. Don't do that on a treadmill, right? It's going to happen. It's going to be disastrous, right? You got to keep, you got to keep your eyes straight ahead. Looking to who? Hebrews 12, 3, to Jesus. Listen, when our eyes are on ourselves, our circumstances, and our sorrow, and off of our Savior, our race gets all fouled up. It gets messed up. When we, when we focus on ourselves and not on Christ, our circumstances become too great for us. We take matters into our own hands. We look for an easier path to take because we think it'll make matters easier. And the opposite often happens. It gets much, much worse. That path injures us even more emotionally and spiritually, sometimes physically. Think about running a race. And you're extremely tired and you're, you're tempted to take a shortcut through the woods. There might be more dangers there, right? Could end up in a worse place. Snake bit, trip over a rock, hit a tree. It's an illustration. Work with me, okay? I don't know. But look, you get the point, right? The, the writer of Hebrews tells his readers to avoid shortcuts like that. He says, fix your eyes on what is ahead. Remain faithful. Stay straight. That's the right path. That's the way you're to run this race. That's the path that leads to joy. He says, make straight paths for your feet and be healed. That's the path to healing. Now, that's easier said than done, right? Because the race that God has called for us to run is a hard one. We talked about that last week. And the world around us is constantly fighting for our attention, telling us about other paths to take to happiness and to joy and to purpose. It's, it's easy at times when you're going through difficulty to think to yourself, is what I'm doing, is the life that I'm living for Christ worth it? Is it really? I'm, I'm hurting right now. My life is miserable. Nothing's going right for me. It is tempting in those moments to take a detour thinking that might bring some relief. The writer of Hebrews shouts aloud, no. God says in his word, no. Heard a pastor recently say, it's better to limp along the right path than run with great speed away from it. Amen. So true. I've seen people do both. 
Sure you have as well. Those who have tucktailed and run the moment the race got tough and those who endured difficult trials and remained on the hard but right way. Listen, the latter is better. It is better to limp along the right path than to run with great speed away from it. How many of you used to watch Man vs. Wild? Do y'all remember that show? I don't know if that's still on or not. Leslie and I binge-watched it for a while. It's, uh, there's a lot of shows like it today, but it's about a guy who, who travels to all these remote, dangerous places and tries to survive. And uh, there was one episode when he was extremely thirsty, on the verge of dehydration, and he was near an ocean to his right. And he talked about how tempting it was to just throw himself into the ocean and begin drinking that ocean water. Now, his mind wasn't gone. He knew what that would do to his body, but he was so thirsty, it was difficult for him to not go over and swallow up some of that water. That path looked enticing. It might have even given him relief for a moment, but in the long run, it would have been much more harmful. This is true of us believers in our Christian lives. Many of us know the path that God has set before us, but when it gets hard, we get tempted to leave the path we're on, take our eyes off of Jesus. We drift spiritually from Him. We take a different route, even though God warns us throughout His Word where those difficult paths, where those other paths, where they lead. Those wicked paths. That's why the writer Hebrews has been warning his readers throughout this book. And it's a warning that we need to hear today. When times get tough, what are some wicked paths that you're tempted to take? Think about that for a moment. Maybe it's the path of substance abuse. Instead of looking to God for help and relying upon Him and leaning on His people, you try to numb the pain with alcohol and drugs. Maybe you cut people out. That often happens. Both do in the church. You cut God's people out. You cut yourself off from, from the church. Hear me, believers, when I say this. I witness people take these paths again and again. And believe me when I say, I, I affirm the truth we talked about earlier. The one who limps along the right path is better by far. No matter what you go through in this life, it is always the right decision to keep your eyes on Jesus and remain faithful. Keep running the race. Putting one foot in front of the other. Continue faithfully looking to Jesus. Trusting in Him and following hard after Him. So, do not give up. Stay on the hard but right path. Third point, do not become bitter. This one's a hard one, isn't it? Look at verses 14 and 15. Strive for peace with everyone. Underline that word, everyone. Quit thinking of exceptions. There aren't any. For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it, many become defiled. 
When tough times come, many of us have a tendency to become bitter, don't we? We get angry at our, at our situation. We get angry with God. We get angry toward others. And that causes all kinds of issues. We become easily offended and we are easily offensive. And our negative attitude and actions affects the attitude and actions of others. And it hurts us and it hurts them spiritually. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. He says, strive for peace with those close to us, right? With those we really like. With those we prefer. What does it say? Strive for peace with everyone. That word strive is an imperative. It's a command. It's the Greek word dioko. It means to do something with intense effort. The NIV, I believe, gets it right when it translates this verse of Scripture. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. That takes work. When difficulties come, we have to work to not be bitter. We need the Spirit of God to work in us, and we need to work that work out to not grow bitter. We, we have to put forth every effort to live in peace. Listen to what Paul says about it. Romans 12, 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Are you a person who strives to be at peace with everyone or is a common characteristic of your life bitterness and war? Do you struggle with bitterness? Are you easily offended and regularly offensive? Are you a peaceful person or are you a combative person? Maybe you're not sure. Listen, if you're the type of person with more enemies than friends, I think you have your answer. If your relationships often end with strife and separation, I think you have your answer. I seriously doubt it's those other 30 people's fault. Think about it. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Bitterness is like cancer. It gets rooted deep down deep in our hearts, and it springs up and causes problems everywhere in our lives and in the lives of those around us. It can keep someone from entering into God's kingdom through repentance and faith and can prevent believers from ministering effectively to others. Bitter people remain hard-hearted and blinded to the truth. Bitter believers ruin their witness and repel people rather than draw them with the gospel. He says, see to it, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God by seeing to it that no root of bitterness springs up. Bitterness is a serious issue and should be dealt with seriously by us believers. We should not simply strive to not be bitter ourselves too, but we should strive to pour into others as well when we see bitterness in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to go to one another, confront one another in love and address bitterness in others and to strive to bring about peace. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. Why? Because bitterness is deadly. The bitterness in a person's heart keeps one from saving faith. It destroys lives. It destroys families. Families, it destroys marriages, it destroys churches. 
When life gets tough, do not become bitter. Fight against bitterness. Seek the Lord's help on your knees to give you the grace that you need to not be bitter. Here's the fourth and final key. When tough times come, do not live for the now. Look at verses 16 and 17. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Sad story, isn't it? About Esau. The author of Hebrews is taking his Jewish Christian audience back, once again, to the Old Testament, to a familiar story, the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis. Y'all know that story, right? Esau and Jacob were twin brothers. Esau was born first with, with Jacob shortly behind him, grabbing at his heel. In that day, birth order was very important. The firstborn had more rights to his parents' property, a better inheritance than the others. So, so Esau was to be the privileged son. Only God declared that he would not be, though he was born first. God made it known before their birth that the older would in fact serve the younger. But by the world's standards, Esau was the favored one. But he forfeited that for a moment of pleasure. Remember the story? Esau was a man's man. He was an outdoorsman, loved to hunt, favored by his dad, and Jacob was the mama's boy who stayed indoors and cooked. Well, one day, Esau comes in from the field and he's famished. He feels as if he's going to die, and so he asked Jacob to make him some stew. And Jacob was pretty conniving. He tells Esau, give up your birthright to me and I'll make you a meal. And Esau thought to himself, what good is a birthright to me if I'm going to die? So he agreed. He forfeited his inheritance for a moment of pleasure, for a bowl of stew. He satisfied his stomach for a moment, and as a result, he gave up something much more precious and lasting. We, we are told that Esau later regrets this act. He tries to undo it, but it's too late. The damage is already done. Look at verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau lived for the moment. He gave up something precious and lasting for something momentary and later regretted it, sought to make it right, but he was denied, he was rejected. He could not fix the act, though he sought it with tears. Now, it's real easy to be hard on old Esau, but aren't we this way? Well, we are a lot like Esau. We live for the now especially when times get tough. We began to look for the quick fix, something that will give us relief in the moment for a moment of pleasure. We give up something more precious and lasting. Look at the first part of verse 16. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. Now why is that mentioned here? 
At first, it seems as if it were just sort of randomly put in, possibly in the wrong place, until you understand the context. That's why context is king. We've been talking about giving up something precious and lasting for a moment of temporary pleasure. You with me? See where this is going? When tough times come, and when one's gaze moves away from Christ and upon themselves, that person is in danger of falling into temptation. And sexual temptation has claimed more victims than just about anything else. Therefore, we need to be on guard against it. It's a problem, not just in the world, but in the church today. And oftentimes, those in the church respond by looking the other way. Turning a blind eye instead of tackling this problem head on. We don't like to talk about the topic of sex in the church. We somehow think it's, it's wrong to discuss it. No, listen, sex is God's idea. He talks about it in His Word. He meant it to be enjoyed in the marriage relationship and also for the purpose of procreation, for procreation and pleasure between a husband and wife. Now the world has taken that and has distorted it and abused it and the church has responded by remaining silent. If sex is God's idea, if He talks about it in His Word, then we must certainly be talking about it. We better be. We need to be talking about how God meant it for good. Focus on the fact that God meant for husbands and wives to honor Him in that area of their relationship. And we need to be warning others of the dangers of sexual sin. The temptation has taken too many people in the church. Friendships have been broken. Marriages have ended. Families have been ripped apart. The church has been destroyed because of sexual sin. And some upon hearing that will say, well, what I'm doing is not affecting anyone else. What I'm watching in the privacy of my own home will not hurt anyone else. Oh, how wrong you are. What you're doing is damaging spiritually. It can destroy you, your family, Christ's church. I hope you're a little bit fearful, some of you. It has happened and is happening. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, it must not be named among you believers. That moment of pleasure could cost you a lifetime of pain. It should scare us. We need to have that perspective, believers. When tough times come, we need to not give up, stay on the hard but right path, not become bitter, and live for the now. We need to keep our eyes 
fixed on Christ and the work He accomplished for us at Calvary, the suffering that, that we endure in life, it should lead us, get this, it should lead us to Calvary. It should lead us to look to the cross. The cross is where Jesus paid the penalty for us. Christ came to this earth. He experienced the toughness of life for us. He went to the cross, suffered and died in our place, was crushed by God for us so that we might not be crushed. Christ went through the darkest of valleys for us. He was arrested and denied and tried and hung between thieves on a wooden cross so that we might have life and have abundant life and eternal life. Here and now, in the midst of this fallen and broken world in which we live, in the midst of a broken people, Christ did that for us. He went to the cross and died in our place so that you and I, through repentance and faith, by forsaking sin, trusting in Him alone for salvation, could be forgiven of sin, restored to a right relationship with the living God. Are you trusting in Christ alone? For your salvation today? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you given your life up and over to the Lord Jesus? I pray that you do that today. Respond to the Spirit's work through His Word in your heart by forsaking sin and making Christ Lord. Let's pray together.